Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Romans chapter 6 is where we are going to camp out tonight. And it's a major shift in the focus in the book of Romans as to where we've been the past six or seven weeks. So I'm just going to review briefly. In Romans chapter 3, 21, or actually from Romans 3.21 to Romans 5.21, Paul has been explaining to us salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, what it means to be justified freely by God's grace. And what we've seen over these three chapters is that we have forgiveness, we have peace with God, we have access to God, all of our sins are forgiven. We've got this wonderful salvation. God has done an amazing work of grace in our lives. This is wonderful news. Okay, so the first part of Romans, all bad news. We're sinners, we're under wrath, we're under condemnation. Chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 5, verse 21, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And last week I said there's only two places you can be as a human being in this world. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus. Being in Adam means you're lost, you're unsaved. Being in Christ means you're saved. Okay, so this is great news that you've been saved by grace. And there's two ways, two wrong ways that people respond to the gospel. Okay, so if Jesus has saved me by grace, I'm going to heaven I've got complete forgiveness. One way is people look at that and they say, now, wait a minute. This is too good to be true. Are you telling me that all I have to do is just believe in Jesus, faith alone, and he forgives me? That that sounds too easy. There's got to be something I have to add to the mix in order to be saved. This is called legalism. Jesus plus It's not just faith alone, grace alone. It's Jesus plus some things I need to do. That's one ditch. That's not the ditch that Paul's going to address here. Okay, he kind of addressed that back in chapter uh, 2 a lot. The other way people respond to this is this. I think we see this a lot. This is too good to be true. I can now live however I want with no regard for holiness Because God will forgive me automatically no matter what. This is called license. Okay? It's to the second abuse that Paul now draws our attention. Okay, so here we're moving out of how I get saved to now how do I live saved. There's a difference. How do I get saved? By faith alone through the cross of Christ as a free gift of grace. How do I live saved? Okay, that's the question. So I'm going to give you a quote from John Calvin, which I think is important because in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he he talked about the double grace in the gospel, and we have to have both of these. He said, first, the first grace in the gospel is being reconciled by the righteousness of Christ 
God becomes to us, instead of a judge, a loving father. That's what we've been talking about up to this point. We've been reconciled to the Father through Christ. We're no longer under condemnation. We've been saved by grace. The second aspect of the double grace is being sanctified by the Spirit. We are to aspire to integrity and purity of life. Okay, so we've been saved by grace through faith to now live a life of holiness to the Lord. Okay? And so in verse 1, Paul is going to address this abuse of God's free gift of grace. So we're just going to read chapter 6. Let's just read 1 through 5 right now. I mean 1 through 4. Let's read 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Okay. I've, Paul's like, I've spent five chapters talking about we're sinners. We're saved by grace. You've gone from being in Adam to being in Christ that we looked at last week. What shall we say to this, to this free gift of grace that God's given to us? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, what's the abuse? What's the excuse, I guess, is what Paul's addressing. Here's what shall we say? Verse 1. If God's grace freed me from being in Adam, if you remember the the chart I did last week, you're in Adam as you're born and you get into Christ through faith, and I have this permanent standing of being not guilty, then why not continue to sin? kind of goes like this. I really love to sin. God really loves to forgive. Let's just keep this up for a long time because it's a good gig. Should I continue to sin so that grace may abound? Okay, so the attitude is, why don't I just keep sinning my heart out because after all, I got my free ticket to heaven and it doesn't really matter how I live because I can just continue to sin. Christ saved me. Once saved, always saved. I'm going to heaven. doesn't really matter how you live. Okay, how does Paul answer that in verse 2? Some older translations say, heaven forbid. It's a very strong statement in the original Greek, by no means, is what the ESV says. No way. Absolutely not. So, here's a fundamental, and when I say fundamental, I mean like absolutely fundamental, answer to the question of why we cannot continue in sin as a lifestyle that defines our very character and actions. Why can't you as a Christian continue in a lifestyle? And I say lifestyle. I'm not saying that we don't sin from time to time. What I'm saying is, as a Christian, can you continue in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin? And Paul's answer is, absolutely not. Why? What's his answer to that? His definitive answer is, we have decisively died to sin. Look at what he says there in verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
We died to sin. Okay, I'm going to ask a very basic question. What happens when you die? You're dead. Okay. Is it permanent? Is it final? Okay. So if you died to sin, what does he mean? Can that sin come back and dominate you? Okay. Not dominate you. Okay. Okay, let's let's I'm going to do the chart I did last week, okay? I'm not going to do the whole chart, but you've got you've got two choices. You're either born in Adam or you're born or are you not born, but you get in Christ by faith. And if you remember the last part of chapter 5, all those things that being in Adam meant, you were under condemnation, you were spiritually dead, uh, you were you were born a sinner, but then Christ freed you. Okay, so if you are saved, are you still in Adam? No. You died to that old life. So who you were in Adam, and the reason why I keep saying who you were in Adam is because go back and read chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. That's the entire argument that Paul gives as you've gone from being in Adam to being in Christ. He introduces how sin came into the world through the one man, Adam. Okay, when you were lost, when you were unsaved, who you used to be, you were dominated by sin as a power from which we could not escape. So not only were you under sin's power, you were also under its penalty. Okay, so two big words there. As a lost, unsaved person without Jesus, you were under sin's power... And you were under sin's penalty. Now, what's the difference between penalty and power? Power is more like it's a, it's a force. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing you can't get out of. It's like you're in bondage to it. You can't not help but sin because that defines who you are. Penalty means it condemns you. It made you guilty. So not only were you guilty in your sins, you were powerless. You were powerless to, to do anything pleasing to God because you were dominated. What happened to that life? What happened to that sin? You died to it. If you died to it, can you continue to live to it? You can't. Okay? So, as a Christian, you will sin from time to time. But you will not be dominated by sin as a power that defines your lifestyle. Okay? John, John tells it kind of like this in 1 John chapter 3, 6 through 9. 1 John says this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason why God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. You notice the words John uses there? Keeps on sinning, makes a practice of sinning, makes a lifestyle of sinning. What John is saying and what Paul is saying is basically this. As one who's been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you cannot live a life of ongoing, unrepentant sin. 
Why? Because you died to that. No Christian can say, well, I can't help but sinning. You can say that, but is it true? You can help it now. You have the ability to say no to sin. Before, you did not have that ability to say no to sin. Why? Because it was a dominant power in your life that controlled you. So if you are in Christ, if you are born again, if you are saved, you cannot make a practice of sinning as an ongoing lifestyle. You understand the difference between occasional sin and lifestyle of sin? Okay. Now, Paul's going to illustrate this reality in verses 3 through 5 by talking about baptism. Paul uses baptism by immersion as an illustration of this spiritual reality. Okay, what's the spiritual reality? We died to sin. That's the spiritual reality. Paul's going to use a physical act of baptism to show what's happened to us on the inside. And Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, so let's just read this. Verse 3, do you not know? Evidently they didn't. I like when Paul says, we, I'm reading Romans a lot lately. He's like, sometimes he'll say, we know this. Do you not know this? It's kind of like, well, maybe I don't know this, or you should know this. But he's saying, do you not know? Well, now I do, Paul. Thanks for telling me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, so let me just ask you guys a question. When you're standing in the waters of baptism, we just had this discussion with your daughter a few minutes ago because we're having Baptism Sunday in a couple weeks. um, And some of you in this room, I've looked around, I've baptized a lot of you in this room. So as a matter of fact, a lot of you, I'm looking a lot of you have baptized in this room. So we were decisively baptized into death. So when you went under the water, it was a picture of you dying to that life of sin. You died to it. We were buried with him in baptism. So when I held you under the water and held you there and held you, no, no. when I was a kid growing up in Texas, my pastor kept me under for a long time. Back in the day, like they kept you down to make sure it stuck. We're not going to sprinkle. You're going to go all the way down. I mean, so it was like you were down there. So you were buried. Okay, so when something's buried, we think about it like when Jesus was buried in the tomb, they rolled a stone over the front, and it was you couldn't get to it. Like in everybody's mind, he was dead and gone. Okay. In the same way, the power and penalty of sin in your life is dead and gone. It's been buried away. You died to that sin. That old life is buried and gone. And then what happened on the third day? What did Jesus do? He rose. And when you come up out of the waters of baptism, you're picturing the fact that you have been raised to new life. And thus, we have a new identity that radically changes how we live. So what Paul's saying is, listen, you made a definitive death to your old life of sin It's buried and dead and gone. And just like Jesus rose from the grave and just like you came out of the waters of baptism, you now are a new person. And as a new person, what are you supposed to do? You are to walk 
and newness of life. What does he say there? That we might walk in newness of life. Now, it's interesting. What does it mean to walk in newness of life? When Paul uses the term walk, he's talking about your lifestyle. You are to live a brand new lifestyle that is totally brand new. When you become a Christian, you have new desires. You have new priorities. You have new thought patterns. You have new priorities. Now, it doesn't mean that those old things don't come back and haunt you. It just means that you have died to that old life of sin and you are a new person and such. What? Let's go back. We've got to keep thinking. What's Paul's argument? What's Paul's objection? Or what's, what, what's, the, what's the excuse people are saying? Just because I'm saved, I can live however I want. That's what, that's what this whole thing started with. I want to just keep sinning because God will automatically forgive me. And Paul says, you can't. That can't happen. You are to walk in newness of life. Okay, let's, let's read verses 5 through 11 now. Because Paul's going to take us further into this idea of dying to your old self and walking in newness of life. So he's used baptism as a picture of that. A visual picture of an in- so baptism is an outward picture of an inward reality. What's the inward reality? You died to your old life and you've been raised to a new life. What's baptism a picture of? That reality. You've died and you've risen again. Okay. All right. Let's read verse five. For if we have been united, that's a key word. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, some translations say old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, Paul uses this interesting term, you have been united. That's the only time Paul uses this rare Greek word. What does it mean? It actually means that we have, it was used to describe um, a fusing together of broken bones or how a wound heals when the skin grows back. It's the idea of fusing together the, the strong connection. So when you became a Christian, you have been spiritually united with Jesus in a very deep and powerful way this union with Christ. You are no longer in Adam. Who are you in now? You're in Christ. You're united to Christ. Jesus kind of said it this way in John 15. You kind of think of John 15, 1 through 5, it's kind of a parallel to what Paul is saying here about being united to Christ. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that He that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And this is the important verse. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out trees and vines and branches. Can a branch survive without the vine? Why? It's not getting any nourishment, any sap. Okay, so Jesus is the source of our life. And we are connected to Him into this vital relationship where we're growing and He's giving us strength and we're united together in this very deeply spiritually abiding relationship with Christ. Okay, we've been united in a death like His. We'll be united with a resurrection like Him. We've been united with Christ. Okay. Now, in verses 6 and 7, Paul says, We know. Okay? He's assuming you know this. What should we know? And this is where a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, I don't want to say false teaching, but there's a lot of confusing teaching surrounding this passage of Scripture that um, some, some groups believe that I think is an error, and I'll explain that tonight. Paul says, our old self. What does he say there in verse 6? We know that our old self, our old man, I like old man better. Why do, why do I like old man better? <laughs> you're laughing. Well, because you're old. Okay. I think it goes back to, I think old man is a better translation because who has he been talking about earlier being in Adam? What does the word Adam mean? Man. So when Paul talks about the old man, he's talking about who we were in Adam, the unregenerate self, the unjustified sinner. So let's read this carefully. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Okay. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? He died on the cross, right? What language does Paul say here? Our old self was what? Crucified. Our old self died a death. Okay? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay. We have died to the power of sin. Agreed? Power of sin no longer has sway on your life. You're not enslaved to sin. We've died to the penalty of sin. Agreed? We're no longer under condemnation. But do we still struggle with the presence of sin in our life? Or the pollution of sin in our life? Yes. So just because our old self has died does not mean that as a Christian we're never going to struggle with sin. It just means that it, sin no longer has power over us, sin no longer has us under its penalty, and we're no longer unregenerate in Adam. We are a brand new person. Okay, so we still have to deal with the presence and pollution of sin, but we do not live under sin's power or penalty. Now, 
this may sound confusing because it may sound in verse 6 that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing literally there means weakened. does not mean that sin is abolished or eradicated. It just means that who we are now as Christians, the sin in our life no longer has power or penalty. It's still a presence, but it's weak. We'll still sin, but it doesn't dominate us. It has no tyranny over us, okay? So when you were unsaved, when you were in Adam, did sin, was sin like a master over you that dominated you, that enslaved you? Yes. That's no longer true of you. Once you became a Christian, do you still struggle with sin? Yes. It's weakened. It's been brought to, to weakness. It hasn't been totally eradicated out of your life. It's still there. Now, there is a lot of confusion over this term old self or old man. Okay. Some have mistakenly thought this text means that Paul is discussing two natures of one person. Okay. In other words, here's what some people will say. You are a new Christian, but you still have the old man living in you, and you've got to kill that old man because he's still living in you. So you've got, to, you've got to keep on crucifying the old man. In other words, you're a Christian, and you have two natures in you. You have the new man in you, and you have the old man in you, and the old man's going to want to take over, so you've got to get rid of him. Okay, so in this view, the old man and the new man are considered parts or natures of a person. And so what they'll say, those that teach this, is that when, when you're acting right, like when you're acting godly, you're operating in the new man. When you're sinning, you're operating in the old man. So you need to get rid of the old man and get back into the, So you can shift between the old man and the new man depending on how you're living. Okay? And you've got to make sure that you crucify the old man. Now, this is actually incorrect. And if you believe this, I'm just going to gently correct you on this um, because of what Paul teaches. What does he say about the old man? Just read it. We know that our old man was crucified. Now, is that past tense or present tense? It's past tense. Who we were in Adam, the old man, that unregenerate person that we were, that person has decisively died. So you're not a Christian with the new man and the old man fighting each other. You're the new man. The old man has died. Okay. So to suppose that the old self was crucified and yet still lives in a Christian who's been raised to new life is a contradiction of everything Paul has been saying about our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now what they'll say is, Jesus died a long struggling, agonizing death, and the crucifixion was long, and that's what you have to do with the old man. You have to, it's a long period of trying to kill him because he's always going to rear his ugly head. What Paul says grammatically in verse 6 is very clear. 
our old self was crucified. That's aorist tense in the Greek. That's a one-time definitive act. Paul does not say our old self is in the process of being crucified. So I want to clear up some confusion because some people will say things like, yeah, the old man's rearing his head and I've got to get rid of the old man. I'm dealing with the old man. I've got to get rid of the old man. What does Paul say? The old man has already died. Okay. So let's be very precise here. There is a difference between the old man and remaining sin. Now what do I mean by that? What has died? The old self. Who you were before, who you were in Adam as an unregenerate lost person, that person has died. The old man has died. Okay, you're a new man, right? You're a new person. But what do you still struggle with? Sin. Now, he's going to get to chapter 8 to tell us how to deal with that sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, he'll tell us to put it to death. But we, just, we can't confuse the old man and new man. Now, maybe this is, you've never heard this teaching before. It doesn't mean anything to you. But there's been some confusion over the years about the old man and the new man. Any questions on that before we move forward? Okay. What's Paul's original objection here? What, what's the excuse? I can keep on living like I want to live. And what, Paul, what does Paul say? Absolutely not. You died to sin, and your old self, who you used to be, that person's dead and gone too. You're a new person. Okay, now, verse 7. Do you have a footnote there for the word freed in your, foot, in your footnote? My ESV has the actual literal... The footnote has a little Greek word there. Does anybody have a footnote in verse 6? For one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you have a footnote next to the word free in your Bible? Cleared? Has been justified. Justified. Okay. It has been justified. Okay, what what has Paul been talking about all along? Being justified before God. Okay, so what Paul is saying here, he's just reminding us, our major sin debt, who we were in Adam, the guilty, condemned person that we were, that person, that debt has been canceled when we were justified. We were legally set free from condemnation because Jesus died in our place and rose again. For one who's died to sin has been set free from sin. You've been set free from sin, but the original word there is you've been justified. You've been declared not guilty from sin. You're no longer under its penalty. It can no longer condemn you. Okay? Now let's continue through verses 8 and 10. Paul continues to explain in verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Okay. Our spiritual condition before our conversion was under condemnation and spiritually dead in Adam. When we trusted Christ for salvation and our sin was credited to His account and His righteousness was credited... our sin was credited to His account and His righteousness was credited to our account. We were justified freely by God's grace. Our old self died once and for all. Okay? And then it says there, We know Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Will Jesus ever die again? No, because He died 
once and for all. Okay, Revelation 1.18, Jesus even says it. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. And so what Paul's saying here is just like Jesus died once and for all and rose again, okay, never to die again, one, once and for all, your old self has died once and for all like Jesus, and you've been raised a new life. So here's the point. Okay, here's a huge point. Two things. Can you ever lose your salvation? And if you could, can you ever go back to being in Adam? Okay. I don't think so. Now, here's a question I ask for people that believe you can lose your salvation. I ask them this all the time, and they never can answer me. Okay. So, those that believe you can lose your salvation, they won't say you can lose it. They say you choose to walk away from it. You give it away. My question then is, okay, if you truly had salvation and you gave it away, what state do you go back to being in? Do you go back to being in Adam? Because you can't go back to being in Adam if you've been decisively, if your old self has died and you've been raised to new life, you're a brand new person. It's an impossibility for you to go back to that. But, this, but can that happen based upon what Paul says here? Well, no. And they're like in their hypothetical. Yeah. I, the point that Paul is making here very strongly is once you become a Christian, it is a definitive, radical, absolutely shift in who you fundamentally are. You, you go from one realm of being enslaved in bondage in Adam to being in Christ. And the way he likens that is to death. I mean, he, he says it like every which way but sideways. I mean, he, he goes to great lengths. He's like, okay, you've died. If you don't understand that, it's like baptism. When you went under the water and you came back up. And if you don't understand that, it's like when Jesus died and he rose again. And Paul's like, I got to get it through your head. You are a brand new person. That old person has died. Therefore, if you keep thinking you can live however you want, you can't because you're a brand new person. You can't do it. So, in regeneration, when God caused us to be born again, the power of sin was canceled once and for all. The Holy Spirit broke the power of sin in your life and you are no longer under its power in regeneration. In justification, the penalty of sin has been canceled once and for all. So the question then becomes, how then should we now live as those who've died and rose again spiritually? What does he say we should do? Verse 10, For the death he died, Jesus, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Our new life is a life of service to God. It's newness of life. It's serving, loving, living for God. So, can you, as a Christian, 
keep on continuing as a lifestyle living in unrepentant sin? No. Paul says you cannot continue to do that. Why? What's his answer to that? You've died. Your old self has died. That's not who you are anymore. You're not dominated by sin. You're not enslaved to sin. You're not under the penalty of sin. You're a brand new person, okay? Verse 11 is very, very, very important. And this has been misunderstood too. What does Paul say in verse 11? So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Anybody have another word besides consider yourself? Maybe reckon? Okay. This word consider means to reckon it to be so, to continually think about the reality of what is true, to ponder deeply who you are in Christ. So here's the question. What happened to you when God regenerated you and justified you freely by grace alone? What happened to you? What's Paul's answer? You truly died to sin. Your old self and Adam truly died. You were truly raised to new life. Those things really happened to you. So here's the point in verse 11. You and I are not commanded to do these things. Can you raise yourself to new life? And can you give yourself new life? But did it happen to you? Did you die? Are you alive? Did you do those things? You had faith, but God did those things. Okay. So we're not called to do those things because those actually happened to us. What is Paul commanding us to do? To think, to reckon, to believe that to be so. Okay? The verb tense there for reckon or think or consider is in the present tense, which means we are to continually ponder or think about or consider this new spiritual reality of being in Christ instead of being in our old self and Adam. Why does Paul command? This is the first command, by the way. It's the first command to show up in the book of Romans. And it's not really to do anything, it's but it's to think about what's already been done. Why would Paul say, you and I need to constantly be thinking about this, considering it to be true? Why would he want us to always be thinking about this? What would be the temptation? What's the temptation? To go back where we were, to act like we're an Adam, and to continue in sin. So let me make this very practical. When you're about to sin... Paul would say, stop and think about who you truly are and what's truly happened to you. And you need to play this through in your mind through the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to give in to that sin because I'm dead to sin. I may think it has power over me, but it really has no power over me. I can't be condemned by that sin. I'm to walk in newness of life. And I don't even have to do that. God's already done that. I'm a new, brand new person. And therefore, because I'm a brand new person and God has made me a brand new person, I'm just going to live in the freedom of what He's done for me. And I'm going to be constantly be thinking about that. Because what do we tend to think about? What's, what, let's keep going back to verse 1. What objection is Paul answering? What, what excuse does Paul keep answering? I can keep on sinning because God loves to forgive. Basically, I can throw 
wholly living out the window and live however I want because after all, I got my free ticket to heaven. Paul keeps saying, no, you can't do that because you died to sin, you're alive to Christ. And we need to constantly be keeping thinking about that, that that's a reality to what truly happened to us. You do not, and I do not have to live like we're an Adam. What's the problem that a lot of Christians do? They live like they are still not saved. And I'm going to talk here in just a moment. I've got to turn the page and make sure. Okay, we're almost there. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has, what, passed away? Behold, the new has come. The old has died. Your old self has died. You are a new person. Okay, this is not something you're called to do. You don't make yourself dead to sin. You don't make yourself alive to God. You can't do that because you're spiritually dead. God has definitively done that to you. You're just supposed to think about that reality and constantly be pondering about that. It's a done deal. Now, John Stott, in his commentary on, on Romans, gives this illustration from marriage. I'm going to read it because I thought it was really good when I was doing study this week. Here's what John Stott says about this whole idea of thinking of your, constantly thinking about the fact that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. He says this, Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Well, yes, I suppose she could. It's not impossible. But let her remember who she is. Let her feel her wedding ring, the symbol of her new life or of union with her husband, and she will want to live accordingly. Can born-again Christians live as though they were still in their sins? Well, yes, I suppose they could, at least for a while. It's not impossible. But let them remember who they are. Let them recall their baptism, the symbol of their new life of union with Christ, and they will want to live accordingly. Now, here's something that we don't often do. Do you ever think back to your baptism? Or do you just think, oh, I got dunked and I moved on? What was the baptism? Okay, do you ever think back to your wedding? Okay, how do you know you're married? Those of you that are. Because you got married. It happened. You were there. It happened to you. Okay, but how do, you, how, do you, how do you walk around and visibly remind yourself you're married in case you, you forget? Or you let other people know you're married? I'm a married man. Look at my ring. Okay, so there's a ring. Baptism is the symbol of what has happened to us. And I think sometimes, especially as Baptists who hold baptism in pretty high esteem, do we often go back and think about our baptism as a way to remind us of who we are in Christ, as a way to stop sinning? I think Paul's saying, hey, go back and think about these things. I mean, spiritually, you died to your old life, and you've risen to new life spiritually, but baptism was a picture of that. Just the way Jesus died and rose again, you died and you rose again. Your baptism is a way to think back to that definitive moment when, that reminds you of what spiritually happened to you. A testimony, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. Okay, so here's the point. Here's Paul's point. Since this is true of you, you've died to sin, you're alive to Christ, this is a wonderful reality. Why in the world would you ever want to go back and live as if you were still an Adam, continuing in a lifestyle of sin? Why would you want to do it? And Paul's answer is we cannot. Now at this point you may be thinking, now wait a minute, Pastor Sean, I object. 
I know Christians who claim to be Christians and they live ungodly lives. And so it seems like they're continuing in sin so that grace may abound. What do you do with that? Let me give you two answers. We may for a season, a season, engage in a lifestyle of rebellion, living like, quote, we're an Adam. But if we are truly saved, that is, we have union with Christ, it is an utter impossibility to continue in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Let me say that again. If you are a Christian, it's an impossibility to continue in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Now, there are two corollaries to this. These are very important corollaries, two important issues related to this issue. If a person who claims to be a Christian lives in continual unrepentant sin, there are two things that may be true. Here's the first. The first is, if you are truly saved and you continue to sin, God will discipline you and bring you back to repentance, which may be painful. Understand what I'm saying? If you're truly saved and you're living in a period of unrepentant sin, what's God going to do? You're my child, and just like you would discipline your own child, God says, I'm going to bring you back. And that may be painful. But it's a good sign because it means you're truly saved. Okay? So let's read Hebrews 12, 5-11. The writer of Hebrews addresses this. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, so here's the, here's the first answer to that question. If a person claims to be a Christian and continues to live in unrepentant sin as a lifestyle, and they're truly a Christian, what's God going to do? God may discipline them to get them back to Himself because Paul says they can't continue in sin. For a season, and who knows how long that season is. If they're truly saved, they're truly a child of God, God will bring them back to discipline. That may be painful. So that's corollary number one. Okay. So we're observing the same thing. What are we observing? A person who claims to be a Christian but is living and continuing in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Corollary number one, if they're truly saved, God will discipline them. Here's the second thing that we need to understand, okay? If you continue in sin and you have no conscience or desire to repent, and you're just going along, it may be strong evidence that you were never saved in the first place. So if someone claims to be a Christian and continues in unrepentant sin for long periods of time, and after correction and after correction and after talking to them, there seems to be no desire to repent, we can't look into the heart of a person and say they're not saved. 
but it may be strong evidence that they're not. Because Paul's not dealing in hypothetical realities here, is he? What's he saying? You died to sin. You've been raised to new life. You cannot go back to that. So if you go back to a lifestyle of continual sin, number one, if you're truly saved, God will discipline you to get you back. Number two, it may be evidence you were never saved in the first place. Okay? So in verse 11, Paul says, okay, all these things I've been teaching you for the the first 10 verses here in chapter 6, you've definitively died to sin, your old life has been buried, your old life was crucified, you're a new person. Who you were is the unregenerate person in Adam that's dead and gone. You're a new person. Keep on thinking about that. Keep on reminding yourself of that reality. Keep on just basking yourself in the goodness of God who's made you a new person. Okay. Now, verses 12 through 14, Paul will give us some commands. Now we're getting into the commands. Okay, so I'm going to stop here. This is not in your notes, but I'm going to teach you some things about the Bible that are very, very important. There are two Greek moods, verb moods, that help us understand how to understand the Bible. And you sometimes don't see this in your English translations, but they're very, very important. Okay, there's what we call the indicative mood, and there's what we call the imperative mood. This is just, these are verbs, okay? Action, action words. Okay. Indicative are characterized by everything that you, God does or who you are in Christ. These are statements of reality. These are statements of truth. These, you're not called to, when, when the indicative mood is used, you're not called to do anything It's what God has done to you or who you are. So, has Paul been talking about the indicative up to this point or the imperative? The imperative is commands, things you're supposed to do. You do these things. God does these, you do these. So, up to this point, has Paul been telling us what to do? in the book of Romans, or has he been telling us what God does and who we are? You guys tell me. Has he been using the indicative or has he been using the imperative? The indicative. Okay. Even when he's talking about us being in sin. So everything up to this point in Romans, Paul has been using the indicative. This is what God has done. He's justified you. He's reconciled you. Jesus Christ propitiated God's wrath for you. Um, you were in Adam and now you're in Christ. God has saved you by grace. God's done all these things for you. You were dead in your sins and now you've been made alive. These are statements of truth about who you are. Now, Paul says, okay, here's how, here's, here's how you need to live out that reality. Now I'm going to give you some commands of what you're supposed to do. So here's my question for you. What potential confusion or dangers would happen if Paul started the book of Romans with a list of commands for us to obey, but did not give us our new identity in Christ first. Why does Paul start with the indicatives, who we are in Christ, before he moves to the imperatives, 
how we obey in Christ. Let me just ask you that question. It's very important. Why does Paul start with what God has done and who we are and then move to the commands? You're on the okay. Say that again, because you're on the right, you're on the right track. Show us that we've been given the power, the strength. Okay. By our faith, and then through the Holy Spirit, to battle against the sin, to step out of the yeah, 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 exactly. Cindy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What are what are we hardwired to want to know and do? What can I do? Give me my list of things I need to do to be right with God. And if you, and it wasn't working, yeah. Yeah. What's five more? Yeah. So, if God started with a list of things for us to do, what will we do? We 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 have two responses. Okay. If God, if Paul started out from the shoot and said, "Okay, Romans." Don't sin. Have a good marriage. Manage your money. Present your body as a living... What if you started that way? Okay, you'd have two responses. Some of you in this room would be like, oh, I can do it. He gave me the list. Now I know what I need to do. I can do it. Some of you will get that and be like, I'm not even going to start this list because I can't do it. So some of you are going to be prideful, like, I can do the list. And some of you will be like, I can't even begin to do the list. So some of you are going to be prideful. Some of you are going to be defeated and crushed. And Paul says, wait a minute, before I tell you what you need to do, number one, you got to know what God's done. Number two, you need to know who you are in Christ because that's going to give you the power, the identity, the strength to be able to do what I'm calling you to do because you, you won't know what you're supposed to do doesn't make any sense until you know who you are. Brent, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think in some ways I see it sort of like a job review is the fact that I don't like a job review where somebody says, Man, you are horrible at this. You're terrible. I can't believe how bad you are at this. Oh, but we do have some strengths. Okay. Versus saying, you know what? You are awesome at this. I can't believe how great you are. Now we have a few things we need to work on. Yeah. So it's very, very important. So important I wrote a whole book on it. That that we start with who we are in Christ before we move on to what we do. Okay? Paul's now moving. It's taken six and a half chapters. Paul's now telling us what we're supposed to do. Okay? So, what are, he says at the very beginning, you cannot continue in a lifestyle of sin. It's impossible for you who are saved. So, what are you supposed to do? Okay, Paul gives three commands here of what we are supposed to do. The first two are negatives of things we're not supposed to do, and the third one's a positive thing that we are supposed to do. So let's read verses 12 through 14 and find out what Paul commands us to do. Okay, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. So what's the first command Paul gives? Do not let sin reign. Just a side note based upon what we said back with the old self, the old man being dead. 
Paul does not say, do not let the old man reign. Why does he say, do not let the old man reign? Because the old man is dead. He says, do not let sin reign. Okay? As the new self, as the new man, you are regenerated, you are justified, but you still have remaining sin in your life. And you say, Pastor Sean, why is that so? And I say, because God said so. <laughs> I mean, God could have, when we got saved, God could have taken all the sin out of our life and we could live the rest of our lives perfect. But He did not see fit to do that. That will happen when we get to heaven, but we are saved by grace. The power of sin's broken, the penalty of sin's broken, but we still have to deal with the presence and pollution of sin. That's just the way it is. So what we need to understand, the next couple of chapters here, chapter 6 and 7 and into chapter 8, and even into further chapters 12, this will be an ongoing battle in the life of a true Christian because sin will remain in you. The old man doesn't remain in you because the old man's dead. You're a new self, but there is still sin. The presence of sin, what will sin, what did sin used to do in your life? It controlled you. It reigned. It dominated you. Is sin going to give up that easily? Okay, when you were your old self, you were enslaved to sin. You're a new self. Are you enslaved to sin? No. Can sin exert an influence on you? It can exert influence, but it can't dominate you. What's sin going to try to do? It's going to try to rule and reign like it did before when you were unregenerate. It's still going to want to dominate you, but can it? No. Sin cannot reign. It can influence. Okay? You see a difference there? What's the difference between sin can influence versus sin can dominate? Dominate doesn't give you an option. You're under its rule. You can't get out of it. Influence means you can say no. You can kill it. You can weaken it in your life. So sin can exert influence, but it cannot ultimately take over and rule your life like it did before. Okay? So let me ask you a question. Read that again. We're not supposed to let sin reign in our mortal body to obey its passions. But let's back up a step. Don't let sin reign in your body. But let me ask you the question, where does sin often begin to exert its deadly influence? Where does sin start? Before you commit an outward action in your body, where do you normally start to think? I just gave you the answer. Okay. Sin starts in your thoughts, in your imagination. It starts in your mind, and then it moves to your mortal body. Okay, so let's just go to Romans 12 for a moment. We're going to get there next semester after Christmas. I'm just warning you. We're not going to get that far. Um, actually, let's go to verse 2, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Having a renewed mind. Okay, so Paul says here, 
Do not let sin reign. It's going to want to reign. It's going to want to rule. It can't. But can you allow sin to exert influence in your life? Yes. And where does that often begin? In the mind. Which means, are you feeding your mind with things that are going to be godly, or are you feeding your mind with things that are going to lead to sin? Okay, now, so first, first command, he says, don't let sin rule. It's going to want to rule you. It can't, but it's going to want to. It can exert influence, but it can't ultimately dominate you, but don't let it do that. Okay, here's the second command he says. Don't present your body parts... I put as weapons, because that's the original language. The, 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 the Bible says instruments, but it really can be weapons to engage in sinful actions. Okay, look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin. Now, now members. Your body parts. Your actual body parts. Okay, let's be very specific here. Your eyes. Is that a body part? What you... Watch. Your ears, is that a body part? What you listen to. Your hands, is that a body part? What you do. Your feet, is that a body part? Where you go. Your private parts, is that a body part? What you do sexually. So here's the point that Paul's making here. Although, he's made this point very strong. Although you're free from the power and penalty of sin to dominate you or condemn you, sin will still want to exert influence in your life. This influence starts in your mind and your imaginations, and then it leads you to actual physical sins with your body parts. So what are we commanded to do in these first two commands? Don't let sin rule your thoughts. And don't obey those thoughts to actually commit physical sins. And sometimes the physical sins come before you even think about it because you've not filled your mind with the things of the Lord that you're acting on instinct. Okay, So think about the battlefield being in your mind. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, what does that mean? We take every thought to be... To, so if a thought... Have you ever had a thought pop in your mind like, where'd that thought come from? That's a weird... That's not just a weird thought. That's an ungodly thought. Well, you have two choices when the thought pops into your head. Now, is the thought itself sinful? Not necessarily, but how you deal with the thought. You have two choices. You can... Do, you can mull over that thought you can think it over and actually want to act out on that thought or you can kill that thought and take it captive to Christ before you actually act upon it don't answer this out loud but have you ever thought for a long time about a sin you were going to commit and you thought it over and then you actually committed it because you spent time thinking it over whereas if you would have killed it or took it captive to Christ in the first place you would have never acted out upon it because that thought was killed. It was taken captive to Christ. So the first two commands are negative. Don't let sin reign. Don't present your body parts as instruments of wickedness. The third command is positive. Instead, what does he say? 
but, in the middle of verse 13, but positively present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to light and your body parts, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's interesting, this, this, this tense for present, it almost sounds like it's a present tense, present yourself. It's really in a past tense, which means it's a, con, it's a deliberate decision. Okay. And notice what Paul says here. He goes back to that theme again. You have been brought from death to life. So what's Paul saying? You died. How many ways can he say it? Okay. <laughs> you died. You're new. Your old man died. You're new. You were buried. You're new. Just like Jesus died and rose again. That's you. You are totally dead to your old self. You're alive to your new self. So therefore... Walk in the newness of life and serve God and live for God and offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. So how can you do this? Well, Paul gives a little answer there in verse 14 just to kind of remind us of our new identity. Sin has no dominion over you anymore. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Is that a command or is that a promise? Does he say, don't let sin dominate you? What does he say? Sin will have no dominion. So this is, this is not a command for us to not let sin dominate us. It can't dominate us because we're dead to it. What Paul's saying is this is a bona fide promise from a gracious God that since you've been transferred from being in Adam to now being in Christ, sin has no dominion over you. It can't control you anymore. You can say no to sin. You will not be dominated by sin. It will not enslave you. You're not under law, but under grace. Now this has also been confusing. There's been some abuses of this passage of Scripture, too, that I've heard some people say. What does it mean to be under law? Okay, let, me, let me explain what Paul's saying here. You're no longer under the law as what we say a covenant of works, meaning you're no longer under the law where you have to obey the law in order to be saved. Are you saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? Are you under the law as a way to get right with God? No. Okay, Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed to be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Okay, so we're not under the law as a way to get salvation. We are under grace, meaning we've been saved by grace, and that's how we have a right relationship with God. But some people will abuse this verse, and you may have heard somebody say this, we're no longer under law anymore, which means that in their minds, we don't have to worry about obeying the Ten Commandments or following the moral law of God, or we really don't have to worry about that because we're no longer under the law. We're now under, the, we're now under grace. Can that be what Paul means based upon everything he just said? No. It's a half-truth, right? Are we no longer under the law as a means to earn our salvation? No. But are we still bound as Christians to follow God's law as a way to live out our Christianity? Yes. Okay? So, 
We're not under law as a means to earn our salvation through perfect obedience to that law, to the Ten Commandments, but we as believers are still supposed to obey God's law, the Ten Commandments, as a rule for living a life that's pleasing to Him. Because what was Paul's issue in verses 1 and 2? You can picture somebody saying, well, you know, all that really matters now that I'm saved is just as long as I love Jesus, I can kind of sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend and do whatever I want and just kind of, I mean, it's my body. I, I mean, as long as I just love Jesus in my heart and, and, I, and I follow my heart and just, do what, and just kind of do what I feel is right, it really matters because after all, I'm going to go to heaven and God's just going to forgive me because he really likes to forgive me so I can just kind of do whatever I want to do. What does Paul say? By no means. Heck no. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not that well. <laughs> By no means. You can't do that. He won't let you do that. He won't let you do that. And why? Because you have died to that old life. Here's the point. We cannot earn our salvation by trying hard to obey the Ten Commandments as a way to be accepted by God because we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. We, we know that here at Emmanuel. But we demonstrate that we walk in newness of life by living in joyful obedience to the Ten Commandments as a rule for living. So what does Psalm 119.32 say? I run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I run in the way of your commandments. I want to. I'm, I'm quick to obey you. I want to obey you. God, you, you enlarge my heart. You change my heart. And therefore, I want to live for you by obeying you. Okay? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. What does Paul say? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Amen, amen, amen. That's how we're saved, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But, verse 10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, what? Good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works that God gives us the power to walk in. And then John says in 1 John 5, 2-3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We keep God's commandments, but why are they not burdensome? Why are they not a burden? Because... Yeah, it's, it's not, if we had to obey God's commandments as a way to be loved by God, it would be a huge burden because we'd never fulfill it. But once we've been saved and once we've been changed and once we've died to sin and been raised to new life and have the Holy Spirit living in us, He gives us the power to obey. And it's not hard. It's not a burden. It's a joy because we've got the source of power. We want to do it. So what's the bottom line of these 14 verses in Romans 6, 1 through 14? What's the bottom line? Well, let me give you just some, let me give you let me give it to you in bullet points of what we've just looked at tonight to kind of reinforce everything we've learned. We were all once in Adam. Going back to chapter 5 verses 12 through 21, which means that we were spiritually dead, we were under condemnation and we were dominated by sin. This was our old self. Everybody's born in Adam. Spiritually dead, condemned, that's your old self. Okay. When Jesus saved us by grace, our old self died a death like Jesus. How did Jesus die? He died, he was crucified, he was buried, 
and he rose again in the same way our old life died, was buried, and we've raised again, and we're a brand new person now. We're the new person, the regenerate person. This inward spiritual reality of what's happened to us, this spiritual death, burial, and resurrection, this, this death to our old life, it's now symbolized in the outward reality of baptism. Baptism is a visual picture of that inward reality. So in a couple of weeks when we have baptisms, yes, when a person stands in the water, they're representing Jesus on the cross. When they go under the water, they represent the burial of Christ. And when they come back out of the water, they represent the resurrection. And when you baptize, you say, I believe that. I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm confessing my belief in that. But not only are you confessing your belief in that, you're also saying, look what's happened to me. My old life has died, and I'm a new person. So when I baptize people, what do I say? I baptize you, my brother and sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So baptism is a picture of that, of that inward reality that we're now new people. Now, baptism doesn't save you. There's nothing magical about going under the water and coming back up. It's a visual picture of an inward spiritual reality. Okay, Paul says this. Since this is absolutely true of us, not if this is absolutely true of us, since this is absolutely true of us, we've died, we are to continually think about this as true. We are to say no to sin and we're to serve Christ in newness of life. Don't let sin reign. Don't present your body parts as members of wickedness. Serve Christ. Walk in newness of life. Serve Jesus. How can we do this? Paul gives us the promise, sin is no longer our master. We died to it as our master, as the dominating force in our life. We have to deal with its influence. Influence is not going to be gone, but sin cannot overpower us ever enslave us, ever dominate us again. And then we are now in Christ, which means that we have been regenerated, we've been reconciled, we've been justified, we've been forgiven, we've been adopted into God's family. These are things that are true of us. This is our new identity, and so what Paul's saying is, okay, live like it. Be who you already are. Live like it, because you cannot live like who you used to be. And if you're living like who you used to be, God will either discipline you or it may be evidence that you never were saved and have a new identity. Okay? So that's as far as we're going to go tonight. We've got about 10 minutes for questions or comments or snide remarks. I'll take snide remarks tonight. I'll, I'll take some, Tiffany. Any questions you guys have on this passage of Scripture? Romans 6. I just think in Adam there was no conflict. You know, in the old self, there was no, yeah, that's good. That's a good point. There was no conflict. Yeah, that's a good point. So let me ask you this. Do non-Christians struggle with sin? And the answer is no. <laughs> You're like, what? They don't struggle with sin. They sin. Because they can't help but sin. Now, they can be moral for a period of time. They can kind of morally improve and, and, and say no. But can they fundamentally, as a non-Christian, say no to sin and not sin? And the answer is they can't because they're under its power. They're just going to do it. Okay. Once you become a Christian, 
there's a struggle. Because what's going to happen now? You are new and you desire to live in newness of life, but sin's going to exert its influence, and so there's going to be a battle now. Before, when you were a lost person, there really was no battle. It was just you did what, you're, you, did what you wanted to do, and, but now you know what you're supposed to do, and sometimes you can't do it, and, and there's that battle. So, yeah. Brent. Yeah, because you were because you're already enslaved to it. Already enslaved, and yeah. you were in sin. So yeah. I, I was thinking about that. I said that a lot of men that I've ever talked to will say they struggled with sin more after. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because yeah. they have an enemy now yeah. who wants to destroy and blow them up like yeah. that. You actually have three enemies: the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah. The unholy trinity so, will come at you. <laughs> if Paul's a wretched man, what hope do I have? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah. what? Because yeah. I was thinking, through, you know, he's an apostle. He's, mm. He doesn't have no problems no more. And it's like, wow, you know, he still does, you know. Yeah, yeah when we get to Romans chapter 7. Paul's like, things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do. <laughs> Who will rescue me from this body of death? All right, is that cool, kosher with everybody? All right, let's pray, and then we'll, 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 we'll get out of here. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Um, help us to reckon these things to be true, to think deeply about who we are, that Jesus, you have died on the cross and rose again, and we have died to our old self, and we've raised to newness of life, and sin no longer has dominion over us, Lord. So many times I think we live like we're in domination by sin, but we're not. Help us to remember that we're free, that we can serve you, that we can walk the newness of life. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. Um, Help us not to present our bodies as instruments of wickedness and help us not let sin rule. Um, Help us to serve you. Lord, the only way we can do this is by grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, not by our own power. So thank you for the, the power that you do give us. Help us to walk in newness of life and be who we are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.